Five tech companies gotten so big that it's bad for the economy. Senator Elizabeth Warren says so. She's proposing to break up not one, but several tech giants, including Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. She says they shouldn't be allowed to both run distributor platforms and compete on them. It's like being an umpire and a team owner at the same time, she says. Spotify co-founder and CEO Daniel Ek not calling for a breakup, but he is calling for an overhaul, specifically when it comes to Apple. He's pointing to the same issue Warren is. Apple is charging Spotify to operate on its app store, but then also competing with Spotify in the same store. So is there a problem here? Should big tech be broken up? If not, should regulators step in to change the rules? Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. This week, I'm joined by Wired senior editor Lauren Good and here with me, New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos. Joining us in just a bit, former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler, author of a new book, From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future. Do the big tech platforms need a breakup, boundaries, or just the status quo? Is, is everything really fine? Here's the argument that Senator Warren makes. Take a listen. I'm deeply concerned right now that the space around companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google is now referred to by venture capitalists as the kill zone. Because if you try to step a small business into that, one of two things happens. It either gets bought up when it shows its worth and before it can actually grow into something that's really strong and valuable, or it just gets wiped out. A lot of people would argue getting bought up by Amazon or Google is not exactly a bad outcome. Kevin, is there a problem here or just sore losers? Well, I was uh, just at South by Southwest in Austin. I was talking to people on both sides of this issue, and I think there was some sort of broad agreement that big tech has gotten very powerful and something should be done to address that. But people really disagree about the solutions. So this kill zone that Senator Warren mentioned, I heard some people saying, yes, this is absolutely a problem. You can't start a small social network because Facebook will either you know, copy and crush you or they'll buy you. Um, or, um, or you know, something else will happen in the e-commerce business with Amazon. But I've also heard people saying, well, this, is, this gives VCs exit paths. This gives people acquisition opportunities. Um, I talked to one CEO who said that you know, her business would not have grown without the ability to advertise on Facebook. So there really is sort of, there are trade-offs involved, and I think that the solutions need to be very narrowly targeted to the actual problems. Lauren, is this a problem from the people that you're talking to about this from your perspective, or is it just a reality that there are a lot of big companies out there in a lot of different areas, and you have to learn how to navigate between them to avoid getting crushed by giants? I think what I'm hearing echoes a lot of what Kevin just said and that this actually has to be a much more nuanced conversation and people feel, uh, to paraphrase Ben Thompson who wrote this in the Stratechery blog, a lot of people feel that something needs to be done about big tech, but it doesn't necessarily need to be this broad sweeping breakup of big tech. It's also worth uh, pointing out that, you know, just breaking up big tech or calling out antitrust, perhaps, uh, you know, calls back to an era when that type of uh, solution needed to be addressed, like in the era of Microsoft. But the way in which we use tech these days and consume tech these days is so vastly different from 20 years ago that new considerations need to be put, you know, put into the equation. But there's a lot of something ought to be done, Lauren. I mean, it seems like um, we've heard Yelp 
complaining about Google for a long time. The, the argument kind of similar that, hey, they run a search engine. It's a platform for finding stuff. They promise to connect people to the best stuff. But then, hey, for this much space at the top of the results, they're just connecting people to more Google stuff and crowding others out. Plus, they're dominant, arguably have monopoly power. I mean, is it time to go beyond something ought to be done and actually do something? I mean, I think so, but I think that you need to take into consideration how each of these unique marketplaces work. Like, for example, this morning, you know, Spotify filed a complaint with the EU Commission about the way that Apple operates its app store. And that call is specifically around the what's you know known as the Apple tax, this idea that Apple is going to charge app developers on its platform 30% uh, of a revenue for any in-app purchase or subscription that is made through their platform. And that's something that's like, very specific to that platform. It's a very nuanced sort of agreement. There are all kinds of like little, you know, stringent things that go on in the app store where you can't link out to your own platform to encourage people to buy something off platform, right? And those are things that need to be really gone through with a fine tooth comb in mm. order to figure out how to best address those rather than just say split up the app store from Apple. Kevin, in, in a way that that app store structure is a legacy of iTunes where Apple was getting a cut of the individual song download purchase and giving the rest to the labels, publishers, et cetera. But has that kind of outgrown its usefulness? Do they need to change it? And I think part of what Daniel Eck was arguing is it's not just about the tax, it's also about the limits on our ability to even contact our own customers if we choose not to play Apple's way and pay them this tax. Yeah, I absolutely think these, these sort of app store taxes, whether it's the Apple tax or something roughly equivalent in the Google Play Store for Android, um, these are really big taxes to levy on smaller competitors. Um, it's really like these platforms have natural monopolies. You can't get onto iPhones without going through the iOS store. Um, and so they get to set the terms of that engagement. I think that's a really powerful anti-competitive problem. But on the other hand, if you want your product in Target or Walmart, you got to give them a cut. They're not just going to put it in there and let you sell it for 100 bucks and then hand you 100 bucks. Right, and I think that's the argument these platforms would make, is that these app stores that require some maintenance. You have to you know, hire people to approve the apps and make sure they're secure. Um, but this is such a big part of existing as an online service in, in the time we live in that it's time to, I think, rethink that. And I really do think these sort of app store taxes are one way. Um, another way, another thing I was surprised that Senator Warren didn't bring up is the fact that some of these companies own cloud businesses. I mean, Amazon has Amazon Web Services. Google has its own cloud platform. Microsoft has a cloud platform. Um, they are literally building the infrastructure that runs the entire internet. Um, and I think there's a, an argument to be made that, that they shouldn't be able to do that, given that they also build very popular consumer services that compete with a lot of the ones that they're hosting. But isn't that like saying that anybody who has an operating system can't build apps? I mean, because uh, on the one hand, yes, these are big, powerful companies with these cloud platforms. On the other hand, there are a lot of them. I mean, Microsoft's got a cloud platform, Amazon's got a cloud platform, IBM, Oracle, on down the line. All these companies have cloud platforms. It's not like you're stuck with just one if you don't want to be competed with. Right, but you're stuck with a handful. It's an oligopolist uh, system rather than a monopoly. But I think the, the sort of 
the, the sort of harm here um, is that these companies have grown so large that they're able to, I mean, th this is Senator Warden's argument that it's actually decreasing competition. And I think you can see that reflected in some of the small business um, you know, startup statistics. Um, you can see that there's just, there's just not as much activity in areas like social media because the assumption is that you're either going to get copied and crushed or you're going to get bought out. Lauren, how does the innovation ecosystem bear that out from where you sit? Because we hear a lot about SoftBank, others pouring billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions in some cases, into these funds. Granted, a lot of it is going to already mature, already pretty dominant companies in their little fields, like you know, the Ubers, et cetera. But I mean, how can both things be true? How can these giants be crushing competition, but on the other hand, all of this money be out there for DoorDash, for Uber, for Lyft, for all these companies that are trying to raise? I think it's a really good question. And to your earlier point that you started off the show with, for some people, maybe having a big exit or just getting sucked up by one of the big tech companies is actually not a bad thing for them. But I think when you look at some of the key uh, acquisitions that have been made in recent years by Facebook, by Amazon, by Google, there is this sense that oh, it would be really difficult to start a company like that these days. And that's both because, yes, of the flow of capital, but it also has a lot to do with just knowing that if you start a startup that is remotely appealing to Amazon, perhaps there's a chance they're going to bring you in for an exploratory meeting and while you're there, launch a service that's just like yours and effectively just cut you off at the knees. I mean, this is like something that happens, right? So it is something I think that is a, a real concern around innovation and the risks that people are willing to take now, almost unrelated to capital, uh, you know, around how they could potentially compete with these, with these giants. Yes, indeed. This is Fort Knox. We are talking about, well, should big tech be broken up? Is that even a viable solution? Is there really even a big problem here? Or are the smaller you know, minnows complaining about the sharks? Kevin, um, always useful to look at history. And uh, Senator Warren brought up history, Microsoft versus Google. But she sort of did it in a weird way, arguing that, aren't you glad that we have Google now and not just Microsoft Bing for searches? Which historically, I, mean, I guess in a way, maybe she was arguing that if Windows had been allowed to bundle and be dominant, they would have tied search to the browser and their search would have been the only option and we wouldn't have had Google. But that still isn't quite historically correct. Right, because Bing was started in 2009, you know, like many years after Google. Um, so I think that point I, I didn't quite understand. I think the larger sort of historical view is that um, there's this sort of shifting attitude toward antitrust, right? We had this notion for many years that the, the, the test for antitrust was whether consumers were harmed, whether, mm -hmm. you know, companies were using their market power to jack up prices and charge more to the consumer. Now you have this kind of sort of hipster antitrust, they call it, this kind of like Brandeisian idea that the thing that matters is not consumer harm, that because a lot of these services are free or very cheap to customers, it's actually just the market concentration itself that is worrisome. It's more it's of an EU flavor of antitrust. In the European Union, it's not the consumer who you're protecting, it's competition that you're protecting. Exactly. And I think that's a valid point. I mean, look, 
we, we don't have, these are not hypotheticals, right? Facebook for many years operated an app called Onavo, which was a VPN that people installed on their phones that would give Facebook data about which apps those people were using. And that's how Facebook figured out that it was going to acquire WhatsApp because it, had, it knew that they were gaining a lot of traction. That's unfair. That's, like, that data is not available to every company. So I think there's a real, like, we, these are not hypothetical harms. These are actually taking place in the market. Okay, but Lauren. Yeah, uh, I just yeah, want to jump in a, on that. Like. Please, please do, but I want to make a, a metaphor here. It seems to me, and I'm not a sure. huge football fan, but it's almost like saying, look how many times the New England Patriots have won. And I'm not personally a Patriots fan, but whatever. Uh, we, we need to break up the New England Patriots because they just keep winning. I mean, is just bigness or success lack of competition in and of itself a good reason for, for an antitrust ruling in the United States? Well, I mean, to, to extend that analogy, it's not just looking at whether they've won a lot, it's looking at whether they've deflated the football, right? So, like, I mean, this, is, this is the kind of thing where, um, you know, years ago, when the Microsoft antitrust case was going on, the question around whether or not they were, um, you know, I guess, putting their browser first, right, on their operating system. At the time, that was a big topic of conversation and whether or not they could have potentially, I agree, I don't really follow Warren's argument there around Bing since Bing came much later, but whether or not they could have dominated search. Okay, fine, that was the conversation we're having then. Now, the way that we get software is so different from back then, the way we get our hands on software, that we downloaded things. That barrier to entry is so much lower that it's not really a question about just obtaining the software. It's those little things that Kevin is talking about that kind of, you know, slip in the side door like, oh, Navo or um, the things I was talking about earlier where you're in an app store and there are all, all those little fine print around what you can and can't do in order to establish yourself in an app store. Those are the things that we need to be looking at more carefully to determine what is actually anti-competitive or not. Indeed. And now I want to bring in former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler, once again, author of the new book, From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future. Um, Tom, you, you've touched a number of big issues and controversies in your time, both in private industry uh, and in government. What do you make of this latest argument that not one company, one tech company in one industry, but a whole bunch of them, many of them competing with each other, are all so big that they all need to be broken up? Well, I think it's important that we do make sure that it's antitrust policies that allowed the expansion of a competitive market that delivered uh, the kind of realities that we experience uh, today. And that we need to be promoting antitrust in multiple areas. One area is the question of breakup. But there are other areas as well, such as mergers. And are we going to have significant merger review? And the third area is there needs to be um, regulatory enforcement of antitrust concepts as well. You know, in the open Internet rules that we did, for instance, that was a pro-competitive action um, that, uh, that had at its heart the same kind of duty-to-deal concepts that are at the heart of antitrust. Yeah, but Tom, uh, it, it seems to me like some of the arguments that are being made today aren't on the same legal basis that we're used to dealing with. Like, it, it's not just, it's not enough to be a monopoly or have monopoly power. That in and of itself isn't supposed to be the problem, right? It's abuse of that monopoly power that actually harms consumers. But it seems like there's a new argument 
for a new standard. Not, maybe consumers don't have to be harmed. They don't have to be paying higher prices necessary. But, but competition has to be harmed. And so I wonder, do you think the standard needs to change? Or, or am I just looking at this landscape no, I, differently and there's harm that I'm not seeing? No, I think you make a, a very interesting and, and valid observation. The standard has changed. You know, um, uh, about 40 years ago, um, Robert Bork uh, and the Chicago School began working to change the underlying concept uh, in antitrust law. Previously, um, it had been exemplified by uh, Louis Brandeis, Supreme Court Justice, and, and others as what is the impact on the functioning of the competitive market? For the last 40 years, and with the current judicial system that we have, uh, the folks in place in the judiciary, there has been a change to what's called the consumer welfare standard. And that is what's the impact of this on consumers, particularly on consumers measured by price, Mm -hmm. which raises a fascinating question. In a digital world where things are, quote, free, how do you make a determination based on a price-based um, consumer welfare standard? And so, so we need to be developing new rules. I, you know, my thesis in, in the book, From Gutenberg to Google, is that we had new rules that came in with the Industrial Revolution because we found that uh, agrarian mercantilism didn't work in industrial capitalism. Hmm. And we had things like antitrust, consumer protection, worker protection. And I think we now find ourselves in the Internet revolution, um, finding that the rules that were established for the industrial, industrial capitalism may not work for Internet capitalism. And we need to have that kind of a debate. Well, and Tom, I have a question for you. During your time at the FCC, there was a lot of questions about net neutrality, and right. and a lot of the big companies called the big tech companies called foul on this these idea that the big telecom companies would be able to use their market power to provide unfair advantages to certain services or others. And now you have these same companies, a lot of them, saying, "Well, it's okay when we have." monopoly power. When the telecoms have it, that's really bad for everyone, but it's fine if we have, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent of a market. Yeah, I'm for openness. I I, I think that you need to have open markets, whether it be in the network or in the services that travel on the network. The reality I faced at the FCC was the statute that we operated under allowed us only to deal with networks. That isn't an excuse to walk away from that principle and the consumer protection and competition promotion that results from that. Yeah, Lauren, uh, Kevin <coughs> Tom, and Tom I, I together to make Tom a really a, interesting point. No, go, go ahead, I, I ask your question, sorry. I, I wanted to ask Tom a follow-up question based on what you said earlier about this idea of trying to measure what are essentially free internet services now, because I think if you talk to a lot of these companies, they would say, even if we're offering a free service, there are software engineers who we have to hire, there's a lot of you know manpower that we have to put into things, then even if, I mean, if you're an e-commerce company, you might still be selling physical goods, which of course require a lot of capital investment. So the internet has become a conduit for these goods, but we're still paying for these goods. So how do you suggest that regulators begin to measure and account for uh, the the quality and the value of goods now um, in this digital age? 
So, so like I said, I think that we need to say that the rules that worked for industrial capitalism need to be reassessed for internet capitalism to address the kind of questions you raise. I'm not, I, I can't sit here and say, well, here are the three things that, that have to happen, but I do think that they begin with openness and a duty to deal, whether you are a network or uh, somebody that operates on the network, and secondly, a duty of care, which is that your job is to do more than to build software products that can go out and, and, uh, and deliver these kinds of things, but to think, what are the impact of that? And how do I mitigate the adverse impacts of what I'm building? I, I, I bet shareholders would have some problem with that. It's kind of a, of a you know, holistic, you know, feel-good ethical mission that doesn't necessarily get to the bottom line. It's interesting. But Kevin, something you said connecting this to net neutrality, I found really interesting because it seems that just a couple years ago, we were talking about the importance of distribution in the terms of the carriers, the ISPs, the wireless carriers being the distributors. But now this conversation is about the platforms really being the distributors. Amazon is an essential conduit to the consumer. Uh, Apple, the App Store, is an essential conduit to the consumer, is what Spotify is arguing. Same thing for Google, same mm -hmm. thing for Facebook. And if the argument behind net neutrality was non-discrimination based on the type of traffic, isn't that the same argument Daniel Eck is making that, hey, my traffic as Spotify is being treated differently from Apple's because they're preferring their own app and that's wrong. Why shouldn't the same pro-net neutrality heat be coming down on Apple right now that was coming down on the ISPs a few years ago? It's a great question. I think that's a really interesting point. And I also think we should underscore the fact that what people are objecting to is not just the size of these companies. It's actually how they're using that size to advantage themselves. It's not just that Amazon is big, it's that it is using the data that it collects and the, the, the intelligence that it has about the marketplace and what people are buying to then create its own private label goods that can you know, sort of muscle out com competition. It's not just the fact that Facebook and Google are you know, huge players in the ad market that people are objecting to, it's how they're using that power to squash competition. So I, I think just looking at this as a problem of, of size really misses the point here that it's, it's, it's how that size is being implemented and used um, and the weight that these companies are able to throw around in the market. Lauren, what about it? I mean, yeah, it I could can, it be, tell, could it be that right the whole now. model is outdated thinking of the FCC being mainly about airwaves and spectrum and that that's what distribution really is? In the data era, could these platforms be just as much valid distributors and perhaps in need of specific rules and oversight? So, you know, one of the interesting points that I make in my book, From Gutenberg to Google, is that we've moved from a centralized network system where there was a railroad or the telephone, whatever it was, you came into a central point to be switched out to a distributed network, the, uh, the internet-based uh, protocol. Um, and what's happened is that on top of that distributed network, you now have virtual centralization which is the platforms that you have been talking about. The point remains that there needs to be openness every step along the way, whether it is openness in the network or openness in the service and the assets that those service, services use to create their own, to extract their own monopoly rents. Right. And that's the data that they hold. Right, so, right. So, you know, interconnection works for networks. Interconnection ought to work for data. 
And, and yes, there should be a similar kind of concept. L- Lauren, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that I can tell you from a consumer experience that if I were to take this phone right now with my little wired pop socket and I were to uh, use Siri to try to call up a Spotify song and I pay $10 a month for Spotify premium, it would default to Apple Music. Same as when I plug this phone into my car and let's say I was listening to a Spotify song, it defaults to Apple Music. There are little things like that that are happening across all of these platforms that have to do with the prioritization that's the choice of the platform to prioritize their own content or their own product over others. And so it comes back to that conversation, not just about, okay, like, you know, whether or not this is antitrust in the traditional sense, but whether these small things that are happening, they're anti-competitive, they're, that are building up into a much bigger problem. Very good point. A lot of these services and platforms aren't speaking to each other or to, to apps that compete with their own. Once again, this is Fort Knox, rich ideas, powerful people. We were talking about this platform issue, big tech, should it be broken up? And Kevin, I'm not sure I see how breaking up these companies necessarily solves these problems that we're talking about. Well, I don't know that it does on its own. And, and, and again, I think these solutions have to be narrowly tailored because all of these companies are abusing their power in, in very different ways. Um, but for something like, like Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, and Instagram, right, all owned by Facebook, um, I think there's an argument to be made that separating those three, that having them be independent companies, would actually improve uh, the social media ecosystem as a whole, that if they were forced to compete for users and advertising dollars, um, that these services would, would be better for consumers. I also think there's, this, there, there's an argument that, you know, that consumers would be better off if all of this data were not warehoused under one company's right. roof. Huh. Right. I think that's the key point. You've just hit on the key point, which is, okay, so you spin, you spin Instagram off, and Instagram does not have access to the kind of granular data that Facebook does. Can it effectively compete? And, and that calls into question. So you, again, you go back to basic principles. Interconnection of networks is what created the internet. But Tom, you need to have interconnection of the assets that ride on those networks. But as where well. does it where does it stop? Why shouldn't you say, okay, we're also going to split YouTube off from Google? Oh, we're going to split DoubleClick off from Google? And we're yeah, I mean, once you start chopping off limbs of these various things, I'm not sure where it ends. I remember uh, YouTube before Google. Right. It actually wasn't that great. I mean, it was there was practically no good video on the internet. There's a lot of clunky flash stuff, so it was nice to have a central repository, but arguably YouTube's been a positive uh, source and, and voice for the expansion of video on the internet. I mean, might it be going a bit far to just go but through with a cleaver and chopping off limbs from all these companies? I think you're missing my point. I'm not sitting here advocating that we break up Google into six smaller Googles. It's an idea that many are pursuing and is worth pursuing. What I'm saying, though, is what is it that gives Google and DoubleClick and YouTube and all of its parts, Android, the ability to have the market power that they have? And the answer to that is their control, their collection, control, and hoarding of vast amounts of data that others can't get access to. So let's think about what happens if you interconnect to that data and allow other competitors to come in and offer innovative services 
and not have this um, this wall that mm. keeps them from being effectively competitive because they don't have the data, which is what people buy. Lauren, last word. Uh, what about the argument that what actually makes them powerful is the fact that they just did what they did better than the others? I mean, Yahoo used to have more data. It kind of didn't make it. I could name, and I'm sure you could too, dozens of other companies that had lots of either data or other assets but didn't execute. That's right. I mean, a lot of it does come down to the consumer experience and the fact that a lot of these services have become so popular because they provided value in some way and people have enjoyed using them. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep coming back. You know, Google has vast, vast amounts of data on all of us, but we're able to use Google for search, which I think people would argue is certainly one of the benefits of the platform. I mean, another question that arises from all this, which is related, but you know, not the same, is content moderation is a big topic right now, too. And so if these companies were to be just cleaved off, how would each of them handle content moderation without the resources, perhaps, of the giant parent company that uh, you know, pr provides some of the, the tools with which to do that? So let's, let's go back on history one second. You raise a very good point. Facebook beat MySpace. MySpace was owned by Rupert Murdoch, for heaven's sakes. Facebook beat MySpace in a good, old-fashioned, I-got-a-better-product kind of environment. Could a new Facebook come along today and beat Facebook when the asset that Facebook monetizes is access to the records of two and a quarter billion people? And somebody comes up and says, hey, I've got 100 million people. It doesn't count. You can't compete. That's the challenge. And that's why we have to go to the heart and say, what is it that would enable competition? And that's interconnection of the data. It is a convincing argument. It sounds a bit like the one about Windows market share that I recall from, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. But great insight. Uh, from everyone here, Tom Wheeler, Lauren Good, Kevin Roos, thanks for being with us. This has been Fort Knox. Rich ideas, powerful people. Should the big tech companies get broken up? Um, I personally am not convinced, mainly because the legal basis is unclear. But this idea of having an equivalent of the FCC for big data platforms, now that's interesting. Up next on the podcast, Dominique Morisseau is a playwright, a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and her musical Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations opens on Broadway this Thursday. A unique innovator shares her journey. Here she is. Dominique Morisseau. I said it right. You did. I, did. I asked you beforehand because, you know, <laughs> we got to do these things. <laughs> yes. Uh, playwright, um, you, speaking of plays, three blocks from here. In just over a month, yeah. the public is going to have access to Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. Right. You are the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. But I, I, I want to talk about the musical, <laughs> right? Because that's coming up. I think the previews are in like, a, a week, a and, week a half? and a half. Yeah. yeah. Um, what does this one mean to you? 
actually a week, a week? Uh, next uh, Thursday. Yeah. Um, this is special for me because, you know, it's the Temptations and I'm a Detroit girl and uh, we grew up on them like they were cousins, you know. Um, and everybody, everybody in my parents' generation has like a Motown story or a temptation story of some way that they interacted. And so it's really, um, it's special to me because it's almost like I get to um, have this moment of, of working with my parents' heroes, actually, okay. you know? Yeah. Um, as well as mine, it's sort of like a trickle down. And you kind of don't grow up in Detroit without having some exposure, some, some very personal exposure to Motown. Why now? Is there something about, because this is, this is the 60s. Yeah. And now we're in 2018, which at least in terms of years. In 2019. 2019, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I pronounced your name right, but got the year wrong. Um, which at least in terms of years is a long way from there. Yeah. But thematically, maybe not so far. Yeah, well, and that's the scary thing, but it's also... Um, sort of what's invigorating about art. You know, the temptation story for me was so personal uh, because when I was reading it, it was very much about these young African-American men growing up in a, a time of civic unrest and trying to make their dreams come true and try to navigate their skin, their identity, and their relationship to each other as, a, as young men in a group uh, while the you know nation was coming undone and sort of Motown and the temptation specifically were being used to glue the nation back together. Hmm. And so um, in this moment that we're in right now, there's still story of trying to figure out what role they should play as artists in this great moment um, as civic unrest and trying to navigate where they should or should not be political or, you know, stick to the Are you doing the R and B. Yeah, we we yeah, I'm doing it. I'm I mean as as an artist right absolutely. now. Are you going through that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think my peers are. I mean, we feel this moment of really wanting to be active, you know, but then there's also we are still running up against some of the same concerns, I think, of just what, what music marketing is and what art marketing is. And you sort of have to n negotiate yourself hmm. and your identity and your identity politics even. Um, and I think that that's what was happening to The Temptations. So it feels very current. It feels really current <laughs> to us. And my cast is mostly young folks, you know who grew up a generation after me even. So watching them like take on this task and this mission, it's sort of, it's really special. So you're an overnight success, 25 years in the making. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you, you moved out here, what, 2001, 2002? 2001, yeah, right after, literally right after 9-11. So I guess I moved out here 10, you know, uh, it was 9-11, I moved out like 10-1, mm. you know? So um, had you planned on moving out already and then had to decide? I had to decide to move it back just a little bit okay. uh, because I, my plan was to move out 9-14. Mm. And I was packing on 9-11, you know? I was getting ready. And then it was like, whoa, slow down. And then everybody in Detroit gets nervous, like, no, she shouldn't go out now. And I was like, listen. I made a plan. <laughs> so I, I left, you know, and my parents were supportive of me leaving as I was young at the time. I was 23. Uh, but, you know, I came out and I, I, my introduction to New York as a resident was a, a New York in mourning. And it's it, very it was benevolent a, New York. Yeah. 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 New, New York, if you come here during good times, it can be mean. Yeah. Right. Good times. <laughs> it's just focused. That's what I call it. New Yorkers are very focused. On I was born in New York, things. so I can talk yes, about it a little I bit. I love it. I love it. It's my home, too, now. I've lived uh -huh. here for over almost 20 years, you know, so, yeah. Um, what did you come out to do? 
I came out to act and to write for the theater. You know, and that's what I did. Um, I worked in educational theater at Creative Arts Team. It's an it's a educational theater company that's in residence at City University of New York. Mm -hmm. And we would go into, we served everyone from, you know, early learners, to like you know, preschool, to adults, to, you know, visiting the prisons and working with students at Rikers Island. I mean, and we run the gamut of doing a lot of social justice workshops. And, and another of your fellow workers there hasn't done too bad? When it comes to uh, that's right, right, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Yeah, Lynn Manuel Miranda and I, we worked together at Cat. We were partners. We were teaching partners. So he and I would go out to. Uh, he he don't remember where it is. I, I I keep wanting to put it in Queens. It might have been Queens. We would go out and do a a summer workshop out there, and he and I were acting together, and <laughs> we were coming up with story ideas together. And at that time, he was working on this. Um, musical that he was trying to figure out called In the, in the Heights. Heights. <laughs> Did you bond over your trajectory? Because e each of you kind of came up in these intense cultural experiences, yeah. went to college, you were at University of Michigan, yeah. he was at Wesleyan, I think, yeah. very different in terms of support and, and the context that you found yourself in. Did you, how did you feel that being in New York after going through all that? Uh, you know, New York felt like this place where dreams come true and they're going to come true really fast. And then you learn like, oh, no, this is not fast, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think I always use my my connection to Lynn or my connection to several other artists um, that came out of creative arts team as a, a way to to exemplify building blocks, you know, like when you meet, when you come out here and you're working, no time is wasted. You might not feel like a superstar, but the people you're building with, you're all a part of something collective and you're gonna be the people that, that we look to 10, 20 years from now that's gonna be running this theater game. Okay. You know, so you might feel like, oh, I just got out of college and I'm not, you know, I'm not getting all the, the looks that I want to get. But if you're building relationships with people right now, your peers are going to be the people that are going to be the, the decision makers and the leaders on Broadway and, you know, starring in movies and those kind of things. And so that's kind of like a renaissance, mm -hmm. right? Yes, right. And everybody has, every generation has their renaissance, you know. So I say participate in that. So that's what was special about working with Lynn. It was like we were in the middle of something we didn't even know. We didn't know what we were doing. Mm. We were just very passionate about our art. Tell me about your creative process. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of what you do draws out of Detroit. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the characters, the, the, the way people talk, the themes. Um, do you start with what am I going to do next out of my experience or my cultural experience? Do things that are happening in uh, the, the current day spark something? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm very inspired by what's happening in the world around me, you know, and I'm itched by so many things socially, you know, that when things happen, I just sort of go, I, I sort of have this, I call it a cue. In my mind, you know, there's just all these moments and ideas and stories that are in my head, and I just wait till they come to the forefront. And then what do you do? Um, do, you, do you, like, have a, a pad of paper by the bed, your phone? <laughs> your What's your process? Uh, I, well, I work, you know, I pull out my laptop, okay. you know, the modern-day pad, notepad, <laughs> yeah. and... Uh, 
And I, I usually think about what I want to do long before I start getting in front of the keyboard, actually. Um, I think about how I feel, what characters are connected to that, and what world I see wanting to tell that story through. So if it's, a, it's, a, if it's an issue about, I want to really look at the Detroit auto industry and the collapse and the foreclosure crisis in my city, that's not a play, that's an issue. Hmm. So I have to start thinking about so who do I want to see? Well, where do I want that to be? I, I want to see a factory on stage. I haven't seen that. I want to see what that's like, you know. Um, I want to know who are those workers that we, like the people in my family, that we never hear from. You know, they're not necessarily the face of what we think the auto industry is, but they absolutely are the backbone of the auto industry. Mm. And so I start, I start moving in that direction, and that teaches me who my, what my story is. You know, when I think of the people, that I are impacted by the thing that I'm, you know, concerned about. Who do we need to hear from finally that we're not hearing enough from in, um, in this broader cultural conversation? Are there voices, are there communities that, that you notice that really, I mean, lots of communities aren't having their moment, but that really need uh, to be highlighted? Yes. I mean, I think, first of all, it shocks me that uh, we are basically on Native American ground everywhere and we don't know very much about Native American culture. We don't know the history. You know, we know that uh, we know that this is their original land. We know that they are the indigenous people of this country, but we don't ever talk about that. And um, we don't make a lot of space for Native stories. And I think we must. I mean, how could we not, you know? Uh, so that's a voice I think is greatly missing from theater, from film, from television. Uh, I also think the trans communities of, trans community, but also trans communities of color um, are, they're starting to get a voice. Uh, but I think that there's a much more vast narrative, you know, they are some of the most greatly targeted in hate crime, you know, and I think that they, we are very, we have a great misunderstanding of the humanity of that community mm. and we need to, we need to get hip and they need <laughs> to get uh, illuminated. Well, you are getting us hip and illuminating us in so many ways. Dominique Moriso, uh, playwright, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations at the Imperial Theater Yes. Uh, at the end of March. Super Can't excited. wait. Thanks for being with me. Thank you for having me. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.